did you ever hear of Satanism? Are we men or are we children? Of what use are all these melodramatic gestures? Thank you for joining me on what is to be a very special episode of Nine Cents, the 47 Anno Satanus Walpurgisnacht episode. Today I'm being joined by High Priest of the Church of Satan, Magus Peter H. Gilmore. Thank you for joining me, Magus Gilmore. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. I am truly uh, appreciative of your time here. And during that intro, I was sort of running through that in my mind because I... I have a heart. I don't see you as the high priest of the Church of Satan. I see you as the high priest of my church. Like I just see myself as part of it. So I feel it's kind of weird to say the Church of Satan. <laughs> just <kind laughs> well, you could say it's our Church of Satan. Yeah, yeah so that's even. Funny. Once you're part of it, uh, we're all a big team of sorts. We're a great meta tribe. That's really important. Absolutely. I, I wanted to have you on the show, uh, really, um, to for myself and for my audience to learn a little bit more about our, our high priest. And if you're right, I, we have a series of questions we're going to be going through, and we can just sort of uh, delve into them, and, and then we have a, a pretty exciting announcement near the end. Excellent. Let's dive in. All right. So, and, and this is sort of something that I always step on with every single one of my guests here. When were you first introduced to Satanism? And was it really your first step into the occult, or was it something that you'd always been interested in? Well, I, as a young man, had uh, declared myself an atheist when I was eight years old, and I spent a lot of time being interested in science, you know, biology, and also archaeology, uh, and uh, learning about lost civilizations and their religions, which is really one of the major factors with me deciding that the current religions were as fictional as the ones from past civilizations that were gone. To me, that was kind of overwhelming evidence that that was all just something that people were making up along the way. Uh, so I had 
used to go down to New York City to buy books. I lived upstate New York, and I would go down to the Museum of Natural History a lot, uh, to the Hayden Planetarium, and to look at all the dinosaurs, because I'm definitely a big dinosaur aficionado. I've been reading about that since I was very young. And there a, was a bookstore in the Port Authority called The Book Bar, and I'd usually go in and pick up a bunch of science fiction books to read, some of my favorite authors like Arthur C. Clarke or Isaac Asimov or Harlan Ellison. And uh, one time when I was down there, I was leaving, and I saw this book on the, the rack. They had those spinning racks. And I saw this black book with this strange symbol on the cover, and I thought, well, what is that? So, I, you know, the marketing worked well. The design was classic and simple, so I picked it up and looked at it, and I looked at the guy in the back and thought, wow, he looks pretty drastic and interesting. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I've read uh, the Christian Bible, and I've read certain other scriptures, uh, you know, things that the Mormons have written and various uh, Eastern religions, and I thought, maybe I should read this. And I actually put it back at first thinking, eh, it's probably just a bunch of devil-worshipping kookiness. Uh, <laughs> but then I, I went around the store and found the books that I wanted, and I was as I was online waiting to leave, that rack was right there, and there was that book again. So I thought, okay, let me grab that and read it and see what it's all about. And of course, I read it in one sitting and said, well, I guess uh, I'm a Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> And I, definitely I had no uh, interest in anything, any sort of occultism uh, prior to that. And uh, I think actually that's why the Satanic Bible was so interesting to me, because it wasn't occultism. Mm -hmm. It was th this wonderful, carnal, earthy approach to the human animal. And it was totally the way I was seeing people. Again, as we all seem to feel when you read that book, that it's just a mirror, that you've been feeling that way all along. But... Dr. LeVay articulates it so wonderfully, and that uh, I'd always been a fan of horror films and such, and, and using this dark aesthetic, uh, you know, the whole concept of Satan as being the, the outsider and the rebel and the accuser, uh, it just seemed like, of course, that that's how I'm feeling already, so it, it <laughs> added all up. I mean, subsequent to that, I read actual occultism. I, you know, I read Crowley, and I read... Uh, other people who are writing about witchcraft and demonology I read the historical things, the Malleus Maleficarum, yeah. and uh, uh, you know a number of grim wars and and uh, and contemporary you know neo pagan witches and the things that they were writing. And having read the Satanic Bible, I just looked at all that and said, "Well, the history is history, and it shows human madness and desperation." And the contemporary stuff, I just thought was, "Yeah, it's just more theistic nonsense." Uh, it's dressed up in a way that makes it maybe a little more personal and less monolithic than the classic religions. Uh, but uh, it's still, it's occultism, and I'm glad Satanism isn't that. And that was the start. <laughs> That's great. I was uh, introduced to Letters from the Devil compilation that Underworld Amusements had put out. And a number of people, uh, after I had picked it up and started reading through it, had uh, forwarded me to this one particular article in it. Uh, titled Bright Teen Head of Satanist Group Must Earn Honors. Um, and it was signed Peter G. from Monroe, New York. And there's a lot of speculation amongst the people I was talking to that it might be you. So could we uh, put that to rest? Uh, is that by chance you? Well, um, what's interesting about that column that Dr. LeVay used to write is that uh, sometimes he'd actually make up letters uh, to put in there because he had specific questions he wanted to yeah, answer. Because yeah. it was like a weekly column that he would do. Uh, so essentially, he did use a letter that I wrote as the rough basis for that. He did change around a few things, I think, to deal with issues that he wanted to cover. But uh, yeah, the, the initial letter was from me. 
and I, you know, wrote to the Church of Satan because uh, I had at that point, um, you know, there was no internet in those days. Right. And if you wanted to get an address for a place like the Church of Satan in San Francisco, you had to find a place that had the San Francisco yellow pages. And that wasn't so easy. I uh, actually had to go to New York City and go to Rockefeller Center. And they had all of the yellow pages for all across the United States. And I went in there and found the one for San Francisco and looked under Church of Satanic, and there was the Church of Satan. <laughs> that's great. So that's how I you know, could, could actually write to the Church of Satan. And their address had changed a number of times over the years. Uh, it wasn't something that was, you know, originally Dr. LeVay had used the street address for the Black House, uh, 6114 California Street which now no longer exists. Yeah. And, uh, and, and not just the house, but the address. They got rid of the address as well. Wow. Um, but uh, you know, then they had a number of post, off bo post office boxes, and uh, various people would pick up the mail as to whatever the convenience was. Uh, so I wrote, and, uh, and I'd never seen that column, actually. I never, never saw that until actually long after Dr. LeVay had passed, uh, so that it was kind of funny to see that response uh, sort of, you know, he played with the letter to answer some other things, but it was it was kind of interesting. Is is Anton Lavey speaking to me from beyond the grave almost? When I, <laughs> that's great. Uh, so, did he ever respond directly to your initial letter? Well, what they ended up doing was putting me in touch with a grotto that was in New Jersey, uh, and they said, uh, you know, you're too young to join, of course, but uh, you seem to be so well versed in this and have such great potential that uh, we could be in touch with you. Uh, directly so that you'll be ready once you reach the age of 18 that you could actually join. So I had a little bit of contact with them, but uh, that grotto disbanded and broke up. And then I, when I wrote back to the main office, they had changed their address again. And it, I sort of got out of touch with the Church of Satan for yeah. a number of years. And because I you know, was going on to school and all of that, I really waited until uh, I was in college and, and well towards the end of my studies, uh, when I really decided that I would contact them again, because my whole idea was to to deal with the Church of Satan. I wanted to offer them something. Uh, you know, I wanted to have my talents sharpened and my abilities uh, ready to be recognized. I just didn't want to say, oh, just here I am, like, deal with me. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of took my time. And, uh, you know, my wife, uh, Peggy Nadramia, like, we had met in high school, and uh, she was interested in Satanism after meeting me. She had actually was aware of Anton LaVey and thought he was intriguing beforehand. Uh, but uh, together we both approached the Church of Satan while we were in college, and uh, we both joined. And then we actually waited a little while to send in our active applications because we wanted them to be really knockout. Yeah. And when we did, we received an invitation from Anton LaVey himself to come and meet him whenever we wanted. And uh, we were, well, okay, we'll yeah. see how work out. Uh, and we finally did in 1986. We went out to San Francisco. And That's amazing. <laughs> well, you had mentioned you met your uh, wife, Magistra Peggy Najamia, in high school. Did you know right off the bat, and I mention this because I met my wife in high school as well. <laughs> did you know right ah. off the bat that she was the one for you? Oh, I absolutely. Uh, you know, Peggy is definitely a very powerful satanic witch. And uh, she had seen artwork that I had done in an art show uh, before we actually met. And her best friend at the time, who was actually the best lady at our wedding, uh, maid of honor, I guess you'd call it. Uh, we, had, we, we did our own kind of secular wedding that had satanic overtones uh, with nice. a piece. Uh, but uh, she had you know, took Peggy to see one of my paintings. And, 
and she, and her name was Lori, and uh, Lori said to Peggy, "Well, that guy, he's you know, he's in my class. Like, he's really neat." So I, I gotta meet this guy, and uh, so we met, uh, and then uh, really it all just became something that seemed obvious. Like we we really seemed to be soulmates pretty much from right away. That we became co-conspirators in a lot of projects. <laughs> we just had so much fun together, and uh, everything just sparked on every level from from the intellectual to the erotic. It was all just perfect. That's amazing, I, I, and I think connections like that are so rare. It's it's really nice when when uh, we're able to you know see one in action. I, I just think that's great a relationship that starting that young and then both growing together instead of apart. That's uh, that's beautiful. Uh, have you ever had any children? Um, did you two ever consider? We discussed it. We thought about it, but for for both of us, we tend to have a lot of creative things that we like to do. And we, we understood, our conception was that if you have children, and we saw so many people that did around us, that you really have to center your life around your children for a large number of years. And for us, that was really not something we were prepared to do. Uh, we really just are the kind of people who, we're, we're just too selfish to have <laughs> children. And I appreciate folks who do that and, and really can make that kind of sacrifice, because it really is a sacrifice. Absolutely. Uh, so many of your years up with that but uh, when you have children that come out to be wonderful individuals it's certainly obviously worthwhile uh, we have our pets we, we've had our dogs and <laughs> that satisfied us instead that's great how many how many dogs do you do own right now well we have right now uh, our uh, black chow chow uh, contessa bella lugosi nice and uh, we beforehand before we we had her we also had another black chow chow uh Countess Karloff of the Dark. And, uh, we had Karloff for 13 years, and Bella is now about nine. So those have been our two. They've been our babies. That's great. So you had mentioned um, you had first joined, I, I believe it was uh, in or, or shortly after college. Is that correct? Joined the Church of Satan? I'm sorry. We joined in, uh, I think it was 1981, um, which was uh, just as college was, was ending. Yeah. We were getting ready to graduate, and you—you you mentioned that you wanted to to hold off until you had something to to offer the church. So, I mean, if you could solidify that, what was it um, that you felt was the the catalyst, that that sort of defining moment where you said, "Okay, I am now ready." I think it was that I was moving through my my education that I was ready to go out into the world. I had mastered musical skills. My studies were in, in music. I have both bachelor's and master's in music composition. And uh, Peggy, too, she had studied English, and she felt that with her master's degree in English, that, that we both felt that at that point we were ready, that we were, we were going out into the world to show the world what we could do. And we felt that that was the time to step up. That, uh, you know, we, we, because we didn't approach the Church of Satan and expect it to do anything for us. Right. Our idea was that we were going to the Church of Satan saying, we're productive, competent individuals. We, we could possibly do something for you. And uh, actually, it, it was kind of interesting because right away, Anton LaVey was seeing me as somebody who could be a spokesperson uh, pretty much uh, soon after our, our personal meeting. Um, well, actually, even beforehand, uh, you know, we, before we met, the things that I had written to him, he could see that I had a good grasp of the philosophy. And uh, once we actually met in person, that became completely solidified. 
So uh, you know, that was what I could offer the Church of Satan, is I could stand out there and defend the philosophy and expound upon it and uh, teach people uh, so that uh, you know, there could be yet another voice that, that could communicate Satanism. And really, the time, timing was important because we were in the midst of the Satanic Panic, yeah. and uh, it was a pretty rough period. Uh, yeah, my, my very first representation of the Church of Satan was one on national television. I was on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and Sally is a moron. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> woman has you know, really nothing upstairs, and her producers are constantly handing her things and trying to, to tell her what to say. And she'd come up with questions on her own that were just completely out of left field and showed that she had no understanding of philosophy or religion. And uh, it was just really kind of a gas. And the whole point to my appearance at, at that time was. Uh, Dr. Levay said, look, go on and, and look as normal as possible. Like, part your hair on the side, wear a gray suit and a white shirt. <laughs> you know, just be as as very normal as possible because, you know, this is the time when these people are going to be looking to paint us as a bunch of freaks. So, you know, if you go out there and be this, you know, charming young man, uh, you know, definitely they will be completely surprised. They won't know what's hitting them. And And it worked. It was definitely a good approach because everybody's like, What's going on here? You're the one from the <laughs> yeah, church. That's not what we expected. <laughs> so, I mean, you had mentioned that uh, he had invited um, the late uh, Doctor Levey had invited you to uh, San Francisco. What were you, with your first encounter? What was your initial impression of, of the man? Well, it was great because uh, just before we went, we had read the article about him that appeared in the uh, Washington Post magazine. And that was uh, showing him he's looking gaunt, and we were like, wow, you know, he's, he still sounds like the same guy that wrote the Satanic Bible and the Satanic Witch and the Devil's Notebook and all these great things. And uh, we, we were hoping that he'd be that person, that, uh, he, you know, he would have the same voice that he had in his literary works. And Peggy and I were just thrilled to find out that, indeed, he was exactly that guy. Uh, we met him at uh, it was a steakhouse in San Francisco and he was at the bar with Blanche Barton perched on a stool in one of her very sexy gun mall kind of outfits <laughs> and when we in you know we heard Anton LaVey's voice ring out you know our names and we turned and there he was and <laughs> in the flesh and he really was exactly spending we spent that we had dinner then he drove us around in his Jaguar and showed us San Francisco late at night. And then we went back to the black house and we talked until dawn and you know, played music and just had an amazing time, this first encounter with him. And what made us so happy was that he really is the person that you expect him to be from reading his work. That is great. And I would imagine there would have to have been a large amount of skepticism, especially back then with, you know, so much uh, just pseudo uh, uh, mysticism and uh, just random philosophy being strung around. Often you, you be, could become a fan of somebody, uh, somebody who's a, a movie director or an artist. Uh, and if you get to the, the fortunate time to meet them, uh, you can often be disappointed. They just really might not be the kind of character that you'd expect them to be. And it was truly amazing that Anton LaVey could capture himself so well in his writing that uh, he wasn't a, a trained writer. He's just somebody who wrote because of the necessity of communicating and that, that he had such a wonderful talent that he could really bring himself to the page. And you felt that. And, hmm. you know, he's so charming and so wonderful 
to read, and that's him. That really is him. And it's great that that voice that he had um, through literature stands the test of time. Uh, it, it just it just holds up even today. That, that's great. So, when you first joined the Church of Satan, um, what were your first impressions of it? And if you could com- contrast that with with how you see it now. Well, the interesting thing about the time that we joined was again it was pre-internet and people really were not able to find each other or communicate. It was actually something that uh, the grotto system had been pretty much disbanded at that point uh, because it had really failed in a number of ways to meet the expectations that had been placed upon it. So uh, really it was kind of, you had direct communication with the central office and that was it. Uh, Every once in a while, if somebody near you seemed to be doing something of interest and you were both interested in, in maybe finding somebody, there might be a communication made. Um, we, we met a, a few, a handful of members uh, through the central office at that point uh, who were nearby. And uh, it really was kind of, uh, <laughs> it was like being on an island. Uh, and, and you, you, you know, it was fine because we had no idea. Uh, you know, when you had read earlier articles that talked about grottos that had been going on and all this sort of stuff. And we were thinking, oh, well, is, is this like a secret society that we're going to be part of? And at that point, I, I mentioned that in, in correspondence and you know, received a you know, letter back saying, well, no, that's over with. We don't do that anymore. It's really didn't do what we wanted it to do. So it was okay. Uh, <laughs> we're basically on our own to do our thing, which was fine because being able to, to reach the source that way and, and have a, you know, a, a way of touching base with, with Anton LaVey made it fine that uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem like we were lost or anything. And, and basically, my wife and I had so much to do in our own careers that trying to get involved with like some kind of social thing would have really not been something we would have been interested in anyway. Uh, but you know, we just had no idea when we joined that, that this was the way the situation is. And, and now, of course, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the only uh, publication that happened was The Cloven Hoof, and that came out, uh, you know, was it at the very beginning it was uh, every few months, and it was a, just a one-page thing. You got one sheet of paper. Sometimes it was on the back as well, but that's all you got. And it's every three or four months, you'd get that. And so there, there was not a lot coming out. And at that point, too, Anton LaVey had kind of decided that he'd done enough interviews that he'd said the same thing over and over again, and he really wasn't interested in going out there and saying it all again, yeah. that there really wasn't a lot happening on, on, in the media. So when you, when you contrast that to today... Where you know there's everybody when we see that's when we launched the Black Flame uh, was because we really wanted to have a kind of publication out there where the people that that I had met through correspondence who were fine thinkers and fine writers we could present our ideas and get them out there for a, a broader audience and we did that and that really kind of kickstarted a lot of things because. Uh, there hadn't been anything like the Black Flame until we produced that, you know, an actual newsstand satanic magazine. That was a complete first, and uh, that really got a lot of attention from people globally. It was it's quite something to do. So, so you folks now, you, know, you have the internet, you have email. <laughs> people expect instant 
responses. You know, when you'd write to, to Anton LaVey, sometimes you wouldn't hear back for three, four, five, six months. Uh, they would take their time. Wow. So pe people don't get an, a, a response from their email. In, in 24 hours, they start to get antsy. And yeah. They really have to, to understand that, that patience can be required, uh, that uh, they should take it, take it a little easy and not expect everything is going to happen instantaneously. Uh, because I, I think that's, that's sort of a problem with a lot of folks today is that they, they really want to be spoon-fed and they really want instantaneous results. And, and that's often just regurgitation or, or just too much automatic responding that to get things that are actually thoughtful and not off the top of the head can, can take a little more time and, and a little more effort. Uh, uh, people should actually put a little more effort into what they're doing rather than just spewing things forth without thinking twice. I absolutely agree. And I think I've been on the spewing end of the stick a couple times myself. <laughs> But it is something that you know. I, I think I think everyone is is very um, attempts to be uh, as cognizant of it as possible. <laughs> but sometimes uh, sometimes it slips. I think, um, and and, then, and that is sort of a, a very important uh, note to call out again. Is that the the Church of Satan as uh, as a structure? Um, you know, there there's really not a, a mass of people waiting to reply back to emails that of anyone just sending it in and and the amount that you're receiving versus being able to respond to i mean it's got to be dramatic uh, just the influx of communications so the fact that you do uh communicate as much as you do um i think should be uh applauded really <laughs> i mean our whole approach is is giving people what they merit if somebody writes a stupid email with a dopey question, they, they'll get a form response. We have a lot of them. And uh, it's only people who are really thoughtful and deserve something more detailed that get them. You have to be very draconian that way. Nice. Well, it's understandable for sure. I was wondering if you would be willing to speak to the passing of your friend and high priest, uh, Magus Anton Zandolivet. What were those days like uh, with the transition of the administration? Um, and I, I don't know if you'd be willing to maybe speak to um, how it affected you and your, your, your understanding of the Church of Satan. Well, at the time that Dr. passed, we, he had been ill for some time. And it wasn't a complete surprise, you know, his health deteriorating. And he's the kind of a guy who really didn't want to deal with doctors and all of that. He really felt that... Uh, keeping to himself was was better. He was really very much like an animal who wanted to go off to the woods and die by himself. He didn't want to be poked and prodded and 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 you know extended ways that were not something that would be pleasant for him. So when I got the call from uh, Magister Barton that that he had passed, uh, Peggy and I were were very sad because we again so many plans that we were working on and all kinds of things because at that point we were, were you know, part of the administration of the organization we we're working with doctor on all kinds of aspects of keeping things running so uh, it was really now a point where we weren't going to have his wonderful insights and his helping hand and and uh, it was it was a shock on that level that that he was gone so young mm -hmm. that we, we knew that he was going to pass and that his health was deteriorating but we had hopes that he would pull through because really to, to pass in, in your 60s seems to be 
far too young. Right. And he really could have given so much more for all of us. But uh, he gave plenty. And <laughs> we have to appreciate. But at, at the point that that happened, uh, what was sort of uh, rough writing was that he had not gone to the formal process of making uh, a will that had been legally filed. He had written things down on a piece of paper as to how he wanted things done, and that was it. And so immediately, both his uh, daughters, Carla and Zena, decided they wanted to jump into things and see what they could get out of the estate. Now, Zena had left and called her, Aunt Olivier her unfather and had gone off to do other things. And uh, Carla, really, at that point, too, after uh, Xerxes was born, she really had become kind of scarce around the Black House, which saddened Dr. LeVay uh, that his, uh, you know, the one daughter that had remained uh, was really kind of felt put out and sort of eclipsed by his newest child, uh, which he didn't feel that way, uh, you know, Dr. LeVay, that he's, but she really kind of kept to herself and... So for us, when, uh, you know, Zena was gone, so that wasn't an issue, but uh, legally then it became that because as you have children have a right to contest any kind of will, and it wasn't even an official will. Yeah. So that became a very battle that, that uh, Blanche had to fight for Dr. LeVay's son Xerxes and also fight for the organization, the Church of Satan. And Peggy and I did what we could at the time as well to, to assist with that, but it was uh, definitely a court struggle. And fortunately, uh, Zena just wanted what she could get from royalties and any kind of property that she could run off with. And Carla was pretty much the same way. You know, they both signed off on the Church of Satan that they had no claims to the organization. They walked away from that, and uh, but they got basically most of the property from the estate, the, the library and and all the artifacts. They got a, lot, a great deal of that. So. Uh, we worked with Blanche Barton, Peggy, and I to make sure that, that really everything kept moving forward, that, that memberships would still be going out, and the communications would, would keep happening. And, and that was really a time to buckle down because people were saying, well, what's going to happen to this organization? And really, since the three of us had been the ones working directly with, with Dr. LeVay to keep things going, we kept it going. Uh, Blanche made the offer to Carla LeVay to be co-high priestess to see if she would come back and, and, and really she hoped that there would be some aspect of Carla that would uh, want to support her father and not just herself. But sadly, that wasn't the case. And Carla quickly basically was looking for a, where's my throne and where's the bank account kind of approach. Jeez. So <laughs> that, was, that offer was withdrawn very quickly yeah. uh, of having her involved and... Uh, you know, the, again, the rest is history. It's, it's people show do, and so between Blanche, Peggy, and I, we showed that we could keep this organization running, and uh, everybody else just basically tried to pick the estate for what they could get out of it. That's uh, um, there was, and it can almost even be felt. Um, maybe not today so much, but certainly 10 years ago reverberations of that that uh, that process and though i i was in the military um when 
I heard about some of the drama that was happening, and I don't really want to get into it, but um, just that it had such a ripple effect um, with um, virtually everyone that identified with being a Satanist. Um, I mean, it, I, I think it's telling in that the Church of Satan speaks to Satanists who are members and identify. And, you know, it, th- there's this appreciation and and even a level of love for it that it's out there. Um, and when it, you know, when it's threatened or when it's um, unbalanced in any way, uh, you know, people respond. Uh, you know. It, it's amazing that you and uh, your, your wonderful wife and uh, Magister Blanche Barton were able to keep it going and did such a, a fantastic job. Uh, and I mean, straight up, thank you for doing that because I, you know, I, I feel like there would be a hole right now if if you didn't, and it might have been uh, from you know where it might have been taken or you know whatever speculation. But um, the fact that you maintained it in the manner in which it was created, I mean, hats off to you. That was there ever a moment? I mean. Well, before I get into that, what what would you consider would be the most challenging time for the Church of Satan? Would you think that it was during that transition um, um, from from uh, the late high priest, or do you think that it was during the Satanic Panic or something else altogether? Well, the Satanic Panic was really a way for us to distinguish ourselves. That was a tough time because everybody was promoting the idea that there was some kind of crazy devil worship conspiracy going on, and we're trying <laughs> to lump us that. And the whole point was that they really weren't a plethora of devil worshippers out there that it was just a bunch of hokum that essentially invented by uh, uh, evangelical Christians claiming to be ex-Satanists yeah. <laughs> baby or sacrifice and all this nonsense they had no no evidence for it and once that was investigated by law enforcement it, it all evaporated uh, so there, but at that point though there was a, a, a bill they were trying to pass that was going to outlaw Satanism as a possibility of a religion Jeez. And that, you know, because that people like myself are out there showing that Satanism is rational and uh, uh, something that that's not some kind of murderous cult, that helped fight that. So, so that was a very tough time for Satanism, and people may forget that at this point because they, you know, they're they're younger and they didn't really live through it, and it's not really chronicled so clearly, perhaps, for them. Uh, but then, really, the most important thing for any new religion is always surviving the death of its founder. And when you see things, uh, other organizations, and whether it's a, a religion that, that seems to have some kind of, it's claiming some kind of supernatural mandate, uh, you know, that the mandate was given to the, the founder, then, okay, <laughs> it's always then, you know, the hot potato game. Yeah. Uh, but with the Church of Satan, since Satanism is a meritocracy, for us, it really became clear who were the people who merited to keep the place going. Because we were already doing it with Anton LaVey. He had, he had picked us. He had worked with us for years. So it wasn't like somebody had to come in from the hinterlands. Uh, you know, there's, there's no familial uh, hierarchy and, and domain in Satanism. Just because uh, you're related to somebody in Satanism doesn't mean that you're a Satanist or have any kind of entitlement. Yeah. You have to where you are. And, and unfortunately, there were people out there. Uh, when Dr. LeBay died, who were like, well, why isn't there, you know, a Zena or a Carla or, or you know, any, you know, some extended member of his family? Why isn't his, his brother in there? And, and that just shows that folks don't understand Satanism at all. Because 
the whole point to the philosophy that made Anton LaVey such a radical thinker was that it's all on you. What can you do? Anybody can be a Satanist. It doesn't matter what religion your parents are or your cousins or your uncles. It doesn't matter, you know, you could be the son of, of you know, an archbishop or, you know, <laughs> a bastard son, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, or any kind of, you know, religious figure. Uh, but in Satanism, that means nothing. Like, we don't care where you came from. If you understand that you're a Satanist and you identify with Satanism as being that which explains what you are by nature, then you're a Satanist. Uh, you know, the, the pagans are always talking about the idea of, oh, you know, you have to be the seventh son of a seventh son, or then <laughs> tends to have some kind of power or pedigree. And the great thing about Satanism, what's so iconoclastic about that, is you don't need any kind of pedigree. You're your own pedigree. You make it by your own hand. And that idea of having things by your own hand is really what's so amazing about Satanism. And so that concept, that that, that was our basic philosophy, that Fired me to know that this could keep going, that Anton LaVey provided something that philosophically is a very different answer to any other answer out there, that it had a validity that I wanted to fight for because it exemplified my nature, and I knew it exemplified many other people's natures, and, and therefore, you know, it was worth my time and effort to fight for it, and, you know, he was inspiring, but, but what inspires it even more so is that, that it's not just doing it, I'm not doing it for him, or for his memory, and none of us were. We're doing it because it is us. Mm -hmm. It is what we are, and that's why we wanted to keep it going. So, and we have. You know, it's it's. You know, he passed away in 1997, and you know, we're we're well over a decade since he's gone, and uh, <laughs> and we're, we're we're stronger than ever. We have more members than we've ever had before. We have a greater presence in the press, in the media. Uh, on the internet than, than at any point in time in this organization's history. We're flourishing. And people are understanding us in ways that uh, we weren't understood before. We have secular people who pay attention to us. We have mm -hmm. academics paying attention to us. So, challenge. Challenge to the, 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 the curse of the founder's death and we won. Yes, he'll say um, was I mean, it seems pretty clear now, but I, I guess I'll, I'll bring it up anyway. Was there ever a moment where you doubted the Church of Satan would be able to sustain as an organization? I did not. I always felt that it was it, it, that what's there as a, a form of ideas, even if the organization had not made it through Dr. LeVay's death, I felt that because the concepts in his literature are so well-defined, that that was something that could easily be maintained on in some form, uh, because again, the concepts are there; they're solid, they're rational, they're applicable. They they define a certain kind of person that's out there, and that kind of person wasn't going to go away. And and uh, the people that could, if there was always an access to that literature, then the Church of Satan could always survive. Yeah. How would you define your leadership style, or or maybe just your administrative philosophy? With, when concerning yourself with the Church of Satan? Well, since I'm a musician, uh, I basically look at the organization itself like a, a gigantic symphony orchestra. <laughs> nice. All of our are, are, are musicians uh, with very of virtuosity in how they've mastered uh, their, their basic uh, means of expression. And I am the conductor and music director of this orchestra. This, <laughs> The score is 
the philosophy that Anton LaVey created and that I'm helping to interpret. And my interpretation is authentic. I knew the man who wrote the score and heard, heard it from him. He said, uh, you know, both Peggy and I, uh, he stood behind us in any interpretation we had of his philosophy because he felt we knew it as well as he did. So I, I have that imprimatur, you know, that <laughs> I'm not coming in from somewhere else thinking, oh, what? I'm going to interpret Anton out of the blue. It's like, no, I dealt with the man directly, and, and he was confident that I knew the philosophy at the same level that he did. And so I'm an authoritative interpreter of his score and the music director of the Church of Satan. And I think that uh, we can play all kinds of dissonant passages and consonant passages and improvisatory passages, but we, we do work in concert as a magnificent orchestra, and the song that we sing is is the the sort of ode to darkness that is the Church of Satan. That's a wonderful way to to see it. I I never saw it that way before. That's great. When you uh, when you compiled your collection of essays um, and, and rituals uh, for the Satanic Scriptures, was that something that you just sort of felt that you know it was ex- it was expected of you to do? Um, I mean, you're the new high priest. Uh, this, this tenic Bible, tenic rituals, the complete witch was out, um, or was it simply just something that you felt uh, it was time for another satanic tome? And who better than you? Well, at the point that I finally put everything together, uh, what I had realized was that many of the things that I had written had been in the Black Flame uh, and had been in other publications, and these things weren't available to people necessarily. And that I had said things that are relevant commentaries about the philosophy. And it just seemed to be that the, I had also had done you know, the wedding and the funeral and such. So these things were in use. And it seemed to be the right time that, that it, it was now a point where people would ask questions that I had already answered. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to keep answering it. I, I've answered it in these, in these essays. So it was time to, to gather them together put them in an order that made sense, that, that kind of built on them and electrified them. And uh, I had some other pieces that were unpublished. And it was also time now to reach out to the public with these rituals that had been done in the confines of the organization, had been known to other members of the hierarchy. But now the greater populace of Satanists out there, whether they were members or not, could now say, I could make my own Satanic wedding. Here's a model. Here's how a Satanist looks at a funeral rite. I can build on that uh, because, of course, rituals are always basically uh, something you start from that you can customize and personalize. But mm-hmm. release these as models for anybody, and it was—they were really required at this point to be out there, rather than just something that was being caretaken by the priesthood of the organization. So, where would you like to see the Church of Satan in the future? <laughs> well, you know, the Church of Satan is going where it's going. And what it is, is the fountainhead of Satanism. It's the way that the philosophy is expounded to the world, and I would like to see it in the future as continuing in that position, that the world doesn't get confused by folks trying to define devil worship as some kind of theistic Satanism, that academics will will keep a clarity to the presentation of it, and that... uh, you know, our presence is established firmly in all of these different arenas on the Internet and in publications, uh, both uh, popular and, and academic, that that the world continue to know what the philosophy of Satanism as defined by Anton LaVey is, which is Satan 
not Levian Satanism. Yeah, <laughs> that chaps my eye. That's something that we have to stand firm with, and not let these people who are trying to ride on our coattails and at the same time piss in our pool mm-hmm. to let win on that level. That, and I think that we can. I think that we have reason behind us. We have a philosophy that is coherent. It is rational. It is logical. All this other nonsense has nothing. There's no literature. There's no philosophy. These devil worshiping dodos are out there spewing something for a big daddy in hell. Them on the hiney and tell them that they're good or they're pretty. <laughs> it's laughable. It's wanting God to do that or any other supernatural figure. Like ask the Easter Bunny to come and give you something, or you know, is Superman going to fly in the window and rescue you? It's all that's. And, and I think that that by showing the world that we are secularists, that we are materialists, that we are pragmatists, but we are a very unique stripe of that. That we are atheists, but more than that, we are atheists. We are self-centered. We have shown you that selfishness can be something that's been that can be rational and that can be a position from which you can enrich yourself and the people that you care for. We're our own gods, but we are beneficent gods when we choose to be. We can give our blessings to the people who earn them. That's something. That's where I want to see the Church of Satan to continue that in the future. And it's up to people like you and the, the younger folks coming up in the organization. To, to really understand the philosophy and understand it from the bottom up so that when asked, they can show how it's something that's a tool for them. It's not something that they need to be an identity. It's not a community to, to go huddle with like a bunch of sheep. It's the fuel. It's the name that identifies their actual nature. And that by living Satanism, by producing the best things that they can based on whatever talents they have, Satanism then becomes something that is a part of human civilization that is positive and constructive and something to be admired. And I think in time, the world will come to admire the contributions of Satanists, and that's where we're going to go. I'm sure of it. Oh, I'm absolutely happy to be a part of it when we're in that direction. I, I think that's, that's absolutely amazing. Let's transition a little bit back to you specifically here. Um, You've shown some of your artwork in galleries. Will you be doing any more of that in the near future? Um, I don't have any immediate plans for that, but uh, one of the things about having some new space in my new home is that I'm able to set up an area where I can actually begin painting again. And so I will be doing more pieces. And, and I'm often asked from folks, do you have something you'd like to put in some in some show? And as I create more work, I will be amenable to that. And definitely there will be more more visual art being produced from me in the near future. That's great. And also music. I mean, that's being your major and uh, having released an album, um, uh, Threatening for Humanity, and uh, releasing some uh, music on the Church of Satan website as well. Um, what are your, some of your inspirations there um, for your, your, your initial core interest in music? Well, I'm kind of unusual especially for somebody of my generation. But uh, I was never somebody who was interested in popular music. Uh, When I was young, I really didn't pay much attention to music aside from learning film scores uh, because I've always been really obsessed with with movies, and I used to record movies on audio cassette because there was no videotape. First, actually, was with reel-to-reel tape and then, you know, with cassettes. And I would listen to a a movie on tape but I could then usually remember the film pretty much shot for shot. 
and see it in my mind while I was listening to the music and the dialogue. But that got me very interested in the kind of music that would be for movies, which usually was orchestral. And so when I decided to really start to pay attention to music as an art form, I had already been, I'd been a painter and somebody who drew for, since my youngest days, I started out with the music that I enjoyed. I'd go and listen to, to Bach organ works. And then I started I listening. That. I mean, Bach is amazing. He's so primal and powerful. Uh, he, he wrote a lot of choral music, but but for me, the keyboard is toccatas and fugues and mm. uh, you know, all those. That stuff is really what what always has been the most amazing for me. And, and even when somebody like Leopold Stokowski would orchestrate the the keyboard things, he's done some amazing things with that. And I would definitely, if people like Bach. Listen to some of those transcriptions that Stokowski did there. They're really incredible. But then I found Beethoven, and Beethoven immediately completely swept me away because the structure, the architecture, and the emotion were just so refined in what he was doing. One could follow it. There was such struggle and heroism. And I absorbed his symphonies and Berlioz, and, you know, his Symphony Fantastique, which, of course, is the movement that has uh, it's all about him dreaming about his beloved. And she's represented by a theme that appears over and over again in the five movements, and it keeps transforming. And finally, at one point, uh, he's he's executed on a scaffold. Uh, you know, his head is cut off, and then in his death at a witch's Sabbath, where the theme becomes sort of a burlesque of itself. And the the, the DACRI, the the funeral chant from Catholic liter- liturgy, is played on the brass, and funeral bells ring, and. I mean, that was just this, this amazing uh, piece that, that totally swept me up in it and, and got me into the idea of music that can not only have emotion and structure, but also be wildly imagistic. And it sort of came from what Beethoven did in his Sixth Symphony, the Pastorale, where he deals with the thunderstorm and you know, dances of the peasants and that sort of thing. But barely was kind of upped the, the level of what was going on there. And then I heard Mahler, and Mahler again, is totally in the line of from Bach to Beethoven and Berlioz writing these massive symphonies that are, are just colossal and dealing with all kinds of range of human emotions. And uh, at the same time, I learned about Anton Bruckner and started to get into his works. He was a very religious guy, but he's really dealing with the majesty of the universe in what he writes. So that the kind of cyclopean power that Bruckner would put in his music always found... Uh, a strong response in me, and I continued from there. You know, still liking film scores that people were writing, and then finding Dmitri Shostakovich, the great Russian uh, composer who was alive at the time uh, and and struggling against the tyranny of the Soviet government to, to write music that was personally expressive. And he's really one of the great uh, atheist composer figures, uh, you know, avowedly anti-spiritual, uh, but uh, carnal and earthy. And someone's always trying to to make fun of the, the grimness that Earth, the world could offer because he was sort of had his you know, had him sent off to Siberia when they didn't like what he was doing. Oh, I mean, he, his work's still there. He he said what he needed to say, and it's still there. And the Soviet government fell, and <laughs> he triumphed. So he was really an inspiration as well. Wow. Well, you did mention film um, as having an importance for you. What movies? have you seen that have had a lasting impact throughout your life? Well, movies are something that I've been obsessed with since I was a kid. And, I, and movies really for me were kind of the entree into being non-theistic uh, because 
as a child, I'd watch things uh, like uh, Jason and the Argonauts or uh, uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Yeah. Like Harryhausen movies where he depict the fantastic heroes from other cultures. And, of course, you'd love these, you know, watching the struggles of, of heroic, you know, people fighting all kinds of strange creatures. And uh, that was exciting. And I would look and find out that that was based on real religions and philosophies and mythologies that people had. And again, when it came to reading then the Holy Bible after seeing these, you go, well, this is such a letdown. There's nothing interesting in this. It's also boring and whiny and nothing at all that can, you know, be the equivalent of these Greek mythologies and the, you know, the Middle Eastern mythologies that, you know, were fantastic, the Arabian Nights tales. So uh, those really set me up for not being a believer. <laughs> <laughs> Movies and Ray Harryhausen and the magic of, of uh, special effects first, that that stuff is all fantasy. Uh, you know, later people could be watching uh, the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and think, wow, Steven Spielberg tried to make the Hebrew uh, major deity, you know, Jehovah, that he's got power because, you know, he lived in the Ark and he blasted the Nazis. But <laughs> maybe that's turning some younger people into believers. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that that when you if you look at things like that rationally, you go, well, this is all effects, it's all art, it's all meant to be entertaining, and therefore, all religion is showbiz, and and it's these movies that that did it for me. Uh, you know, I always loved horror films, the universal horror films. Yeah. Uh, see, and Boris Karloff were were very important figures to me. Uh, the char various characters that they played, and of course, uh, one of my favorite films is The Black Cat. It's one of the few that has an, a satanic high priest as a major character. And he's not just some skulking dirtbag. He's the leading modernist architect of the time, you know, when they, when they depict him. He's built this extraordinarily advanced building with, with uh, you know, technology that he's created himself. And he has a strange fetish for taking women and preserving them in canisters. <laughs> but when, when you see the meaning of the Satanists there, again, it's not some... Uh, furtive cultist, but it's all people who show up dressed in suits and you know tie. The men are in, in in you know tie and tails, evening wear, and the women are all in these gowns. It's like they're obviously well successful people. And that too was a movie that had a lot of influence on Anton Lavey when he looked at that and said, "Well, this doesn't exist for real, but I think it ought to." And I think that was really kind of one of the another one of those things that that clicked for him to say that. This kind of a religion that has, you know, not somebody preserving women in canisters, but but that it, it's something that, that deals with successful, intelligent people, and that's what Satanism really should be. So that was a very powerful impact on me. Not only the characters that uh, you know, Lugosi and Karloff played in, in all of their different wonderful forms, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, uh, but uh, that particular movie really had a wonderful impact. That's great. You know there. For those of us who have been paying attention, there have been a, a few tantalizing images of the Victorian Black House belonging to you and your wife that have been released. Will you be allowing any more anytime soon? Well, bit by bit, uh, we've left little little bits out about it. Uh, Anton LaVey had told me himself that uh, early on he was kind of regretful that he used his home address for the Church of Satan. <laughs> I can see that. Everybody knew where he lived. You know, folks did they would shoot at the house at times when you see the early pictures there was no fence there but later they had to put up a, a fence with barbed wire at the top 
to keep people away from the house. You know, he, he kind of inspired me with the idea that you just don't wave too many flags about where you live. What I've been doing, you know, we bought this wonderful Victorian house. It's a wonderful Adams Family kind of thing. And uh, it is black now. With uh, It's actually a six-color scheme. Uh, the body color is black, two reds, two purples, and copper is an accent color. Uh-huh. So it's, it's very much a, a sort of New England-style Victorian painted lady. But uh, we will release images here and there, and I'm working diligently to do the interior. Uh, there's a lot of rooms in here. They're not huge, but there's plenty of them. And I'm really inspired by uh, the Mask of the Red Death, both the original tale by Poe and the Roger Corman film with Vincent Price in it uh, as a, an aesthetic choice uh, model for me, uh, using very vivid colors in rooms and, and sort of keying them to different levels. Like, you know, we have very red rooms and very dark green rooms and deep purple and copper on the woodwork or bronze. We even have a gold room. So Very cool. Rooms are all like really vivid and striking and I'm often doing all kinds of detailed things with how the paint's on and pointing out the the interior details in a way that I had done on the exterior. So uh, at a certain point, I think we'll probably do a photo tour of the completed rooms uh, for people who are curious. But the interesting thing is that folks have come here. We've done, you know, we originally consecrated the ritual here a couple of years ago when, uh, you know, the visitors are out there spreading the legend of the new Black House. So that's just beginning, and it'll keep growing in vibrancy as the years go on. <laughs> Fantastic. You had mentioned in the beginning of the um, episode that we're sort of a meta-tribe of sorts, and uh, the Church of Satan. And I, I wanted to ask you a sort of follow-up to that, um, if, candidly, if it, it's sort of framed around the idea of communities. And I know you, you've written specifically to the idea of there is no, you know, the myth of the satanic community. There is no satanic community. Um, but there are, you know, it, it's this idea where, you know, we're a meta tribe of sorts. We we do have uh, social network engagements, um, you know, in forums, for example, um, Letters from the Devil and stuff like that. So I was wondering if, if maybe, you know, you could clarify, I don't know, has it changed at all, I guess would be my question, the idea of, of the myth of the satanic community. I mean, certainly there's no living community, um, but I I would venture to say that there is an online community that that is very active, um, not promoting outside, but within ourselves. Well, I, I don't really look at that as being a community, and I don't think that people should view it in that sense, because for me, a community is something that's usually set up to isolate people in a way that is almost setting themselves up to be victims rather than those who are in control of things. It's kind of, uh, Dr. LeBay used to call it huddling like sheep, which is really one of the reasons why he had canceled the grotto system at a certain point, because he felt that people were looking for refuge in, in this kind of gathering rather than using links with other people in the cabal sense to find folks that were with similar interests and who could energize each other in a way that was productive rather than being something that was defensive. 
Uh, and for me, that's really the, the key. It was something that was an issue for, for doctor, and I certainly have amplified that, in fact, uh, because we now have all of this online kind of uh, technology for people to communicate. There's nothing wrong with communication, uh, but when people start to to really bring themselves together in a way that's not productive, that really is uh, isolationist in a way that, that is uh, like victims or like the hunted trying to, to find a way of defending themselves from somebody else that's pursuing them, that's a position of weakness. And the Satanists should never put themselves in that position. We should always be in the position of strength. And we should always be, when dealing with other Satanists, it should be something that is by choice. Uh, when communities are established, those things become something more of a, a way of trying to put everybody on the same level, essentially. When you look at how most people do that kind of thing, any kind of religion or society, it's, it's, it's really kind of a pecking order sort of thing, where everybody's just trying to knock each other down to some kind of specific... Uh, usually a common denominator that's very common. And uh, that's, that's just utterly not satanic. I, we, I really think that it's really important for the Satanists to feel that they can survive on their own, that they don't need other Satanists, that they, they could always really essentially be like a seed that, that could recreate the ideas of the Church of Satan all on their own. If there were no other people who were Satanists around, that... that those ideas wouldn't die, that the Church of Satan wouldn't die, that it doesn't need some kind of, of network of people that are constantly bolstering each other because we should have the strength to stand on our own. Brilliant. Yeah, that, that makes perfect. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. That was uh, uh, very insightful. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, what happens a lot is, is people read that and any time, um, because, you know, I, I do think that there are because of the um, online social networks and um, forums and such in our modern age, um, not necessarily uh, hiding or, or, or you know, uh, huddling together, but it is a way to reach out to others and, um, you know, sort of share experience and thought. I think there has been confusion between what you had expressed um, and certainly within my understanding of it. So, well, the, you know, the capabilities are there, but I think that, that there really is a danger for people to treat the Church of Satan as if it's just like some other religious organization, yeah. and we're not. You know, we don't work that way. We're not trying to do something where there's a building you go to and have regular <laughs> meetings, and everybody, you know, links arms and goes, you know, saying Hail Satan <laughs> and, you know, dancing down the garden pathway. It's, it's not the satanic way. And, and, and too many people come to Satanism with the idea that, oh, let's just throw Jesus out, but we'll stick Satan in, and we'll just behave the same way we did when we were Christians. And that's just utterly mistaken. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, too many people try to turn it that way, and I will not let that happen. This is not a Christian church. It doesn't function like a Christian church. It never will function like a Christian church. And people who try to do that with it have completely misunderstood fundamental principles of the way Satanism is formed as a philosophy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Okay, well, speaking of years going on, what is next for Megas Peter H. Gilmore? We have something very special that we're launching this Walpurgisnacht. Uh, Reverend Kevin Slaughter, uh, with his company Underworld Amusements, is going to release a Spanish-language translation of my book, The Satanic Scriptures. 
Wow. This, and it's what's actually very cool about this is he's got an entire team of translators. And what they're doing, since they come from different countries, is they're trying to make certain that the Spanish, which has various colloquial specificities in different nations, can be manipulated so that it actually will be very clear to any Spanish reader, regardless of their nation of origin. Now, there's going to be a slipcase edition, just like the English one, and that's going to be announced on Kickstarter for Walpurgisnacht, and people will be able to buy that in advance. Actually, they're going to have to. Uh, and then there's going to be some special goodies that can go along with it, and even something that may be a very big surprise. Join everybody to go take a look at the Kickstarter site and see what is happening there, because I think they'll find it to be very exciting, whether they speak Spanish or not. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, I mean... As far as languages go, it's my understanding that English is number one spoken around the world, but, I mean, isn't Spanish right on its tails? Pretty much. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure population-wise what the statistics are these days, because there's still a hell of a lot of people who speak Chinese in uh, various <laughs> <Yeah>. dialects. But uh, <laughs> uh, Spanish is right up there. There's a lot of folks doing that. So it's going to be an honor to have my words translated to that language. I think it'll be exciting to see. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm certainly in America. Um, <laughs> I would have to say that Spanish has got to be the second uh, largest spoken language. Where can people go to to learn more about this? Uh, there is a special website for it. We'll just post the URL with the show. Uh, there's the Kickstarter site, and then there's going to be a site for the book itself because uh, it's going to be in uh, hardcover, hardcover slipcase, and a paperback edition as well. And oh, that's fantastic. I remember the, the, the hardcover of your, the original release and Slipcase, I mean, they sold out really quick. So that's, I mean, this is something that people must act on. <laughs> I mean, oh, that, I, I would think so. And, and it's being done by the same printer. So it's going to really be the same quality, just in Spanish, that it'll be just like the original, uh, the way it was released in English. <laughs> well, I'll definitely be putting the URL in the show notes and uh, releasing information about it through all the social networks that I'm connected to. So uh, that's amazing. Very exciting. Thank you so much for joining me and for spending so much of your valuable time with me. I truly appreciate it, Megas Gilmore. I hope sometime in the future... Um, I can have you on again and we can uh, talk a little bit more. I, I'm also a big fan of uh, classical music and, and movies, and I would love to just chat you up about it if, if the opportunity ever arises. I enjoy speaking about both of those topics. Uh, we could <laughs> go on for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, until we can speak again and for the continued success of Satanism and the Church of Satan, Hail Satan. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been an, again, honor and a pleasure. And I know that with the kind of caliber of people that are coming to our organization, that the future of Satanism is going to be in great hands. Hail Satan to that. I would like to reiterate, the Los Escrituras Satanicus Kickstarter is beginning. You can learn all about it at LosEscriturasSatanicus.com. It is a bit of a mouthful, but the URL will be in the show notes, um, a shortened URL, and just in case you can't spell Lasis Cretoris Satanicus, uh, like I wouldn't be able to, and uh, everything is going to be explained there. However, 
and listen closely. If you want a slipcase edition, you've got to buy it now. If you want a hardback edition, you really should buy that now as well. Because the entire hook to Kickstarter is that if enough people don't back the project, it just doesn't happen. You're not charging any money, and these nice versions won't be printed at all. Even if you don't speak Spanish, these are great for collectors. Foreign language editions of these kinds of books are usually incredibly difficult to find, more expensive, and usually nowhere near as nice. You can also back the project a few times if you want two different rewards or just decide to throw a few extra bucks in later on. It's also really important to share the project with others. Post a link on the page, on message boards, on Facebook, wherever your social networking takes you. Get the word out about this Kickstarter program. If you remember, it was just last year the original Satanic Scriptures were re-released. This volume <laughs> will sell out, and it will get expensive. This is your chance, from the ground level, to secure your copy of however you want it. Don't miss out. I would like to once again thank Magus Peter H. Gilmore, and I would also like to take a moment and thank Magistra Nadromia. There's a saying, behind every great man, there's a great woman, for a reason. Thank you, Magistra, for your inspiring communications and for the hard work and long hours you've spent keeping the Church of Satan running, seemingly so effortlessly. Without both of you, who knows what the Church of Satan would be today, if it would be today. Thank you very much. Music used with permission includes The Law of the Talon and Threnody for Humanity by Peter H. Gilmore with samples of Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, performed by Kevin Bowyer. Films sampled include The Black Cat and Rosemary's Baby. Special thanks to Reverend Brian Moore for taking me back in time and sharing his unique insights, Reverend Kevin I. Slaughter for his support, guidance, and opportunities, and to Megas Gilmore and Magistra Nodromia, ever forward. And to the audience, that's it for yet another show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And as always, I am your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!
Yeah, yeah.